Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 68 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Thank you so much for the very kind welcome back. It was our most downloaded episode of all time. I particularly liked all the GIFs on Twitter that we were linked into. We have a very meme listenership, mm. which um, makes me happy, or as a, a meme, as <laughs> Dolly Alderton, or did you get that from Gemma Collins? The JC. The, the GC, GC. would say. Speaking of, Domino's are regretting some quite meme behaviour right now, aren't they? Yes, it's my favourite piece of uh, breaking news this week. Breaking news. Domino's Russia has had to retract a promotion that promised free pizzas for life to anyone who uh, gets a Domino's logo tattoo and has photographic evidence of it. And they had to cap the number at 350 participants as a surprising amount of people were willing to get tattooed for some free stuffed crust. Other talking points this week. Further to last week's discussion, Roxanne Pallet went on and has since left Celebrity Island after saying that the campfire reminded her of a house fire she was in when she was six. Who the hell is advising this mm. woman? Can you believe that she was on to that mm. show? In the, in the time since we recorded the last episode, she cannot win back, quote unquote, whatever showbiz reputation that her management are trying to cling on to. And it's painful to watch from a psychological point of view. I really thought of what you said last week, Dolly, about why did the producers cast her? With Celebrity Big Brother, at least you could argue that they might mm. not have foreseen what would happen. Celebrity Island knew how vulnerable she was. And I think they should be criticised for casting her because it's gross and so patently exploitative. Mm, I agree. In much more serious news, the US is preparing for a devastating hurricane named Florence. A million people have been instructed to evacuate the coasts of states, including South Carolina, North Carolina and Virginia, as the 340-mile-long Florence, described as a monster, travels towards the US with an expected arrival time of Friday morning. What's in the mailbag this week, Doll? We've had two more people try to make bookings at the Hilo Hotel, <laughs> one of whom was particularly worried about accommodating his spaniel called Charlie. Do you think these are spoofs? I can't tell I spam think, from scam. I think the spaniel one was purely to amuse us, which it did, so thank you very much. Did you confirm their bookings, though? You must keep confirming their bookings. <laughs> I don't want our trip advisor of you to go down, Dolly. I haven't confirmed their bookings, so I will do as a matter of urgency. I especially enjoyed that one of the men who tried to book our fair abode was called David Pencil. So underrated these days, the uh, humble HB. We also received an email from Tilly, who works for the Refugee Women's Centre that supports refugee women and children living rough in Calais and Dunkirk that we thought was really important to read out. There are currently about 100 families living in desperate conditions. We are on the ground every day, acting as advocates for each woman, providing a safe space for psychosocial support, organising children's activities, helping with legal support, transport and distributing vital material items. 
However, we've run into trouble. Last night, someone broke into our warehouse and started a fire. By the time we woke in the morning, the entire building had burned to the ground. The building held all our stock, which we had gathered over the last few years. Nothing was salvageable. We are the only port of call for women who need tents, blankets and warm clothes to survive and essential items like nappies and baby wipes to keep their children clean. New families arrive at the camp empty-handed every day and it is especially urgent at this time with winter around the corner. We are doing an emergency call-out for material and monetary donations and it would be amazing for the message to reach a larger audience. Thank you so much to Tilly for your email. I'm sure loads of you want to donate. We will put the GoFundMe link in the show notes to the fundraiser page. £20 buys a warm sleeping bag. £17 buys a tent. £15 buys a pack of 90 nappies. £5 buys a pair of women's leggings. And £2 buys a two-pack of dummies. The Hilo bought a warm sleeping bag this morning. And it took a matter of seconds yeah 30 seconds yeah we also received a very sad email from jay i'm not sure if she wants to identify so we're just going to use her initial the title was posthumous social media control i am never normally brave enough to voice my opinion or concern on anything in fear of being wrong or ridiculed well we are very glad you did because there is no shame on the high low However, whilst listening to your latest episode, I was horrified to hear yet another victim being abused online without the ability to defend themselves. My own experience of this caused incredible distress. My little brother tragically died a few years ago whilst on leave from his tour of Sierra Leone with the British Army. Hundreds, if not thousands, of virtual notes of sympathy, memories and photographs were posted on all of his social media platforms, which at the time were of great comfort to our family. Months later, when having a bad day, I went to look at the last messages he sent me over Facebook Messenger and I found I was unable to search for him. This was because someone had logged into his account and blocked myself and my mother. Words cannot describe how horrible it feels to have someone take away what is essentially a part of my brother's life. The small messages of I love you and the XX are gone and they meant as much to me as a handwritten card or note. When I contacted Facebook, it was like hitting a brick wall. As the executor of his will, I had rights over all of his physical estate, yet his virtual one could not be claimed and the block still exists. It is devastating with social media being such a pertinent part of our lives that it is one of the least controlled especially after a person dies. I hope that if anyone reads this email, it will shed some light into what can happen when control is not handled properly. I found the description of this poor person's experience incredibly upsetting. And we thought, as ever, this might be a useful thing to read out, as there might be other listeners who've had similar experiences and that might be useful to get in touch. There may even be a potential solution. And as always, we can connect you. So please do get in touch. I suppose what's so strange is that Facebook doesn't have empathy, obviously, as an engine. But the people who work there are human. Why not refer to some mm. kind of legal ombudsman who could override this? Mm. We should do something on social media, Wills. I'm more and more intrigued by the legality and the necessity of them. To be continued. Lastly, in the mailbag, we had a recommendation for book buyers. Vicky says, as prolific readers, I wondered if you'd come across Wordery. It's a great alternative to Amazon for buying books, good prices, free delivery, and a little less guilt than buying from the giant. Thank you very much for your recommendation, Vicky. I will be looking up Wordery. What have you been enjoying this week, Panda? 
I just finished Adele, the second translated novel, but the first to be written, by Leila Slamani, a previous guest of the Hilo. In French, the title is In the Garden of the Ogre, and I can understand why they renamed it, as it's very much the story of one woman, Adele, but I think when you know that the original title was In the Garden of the Ogre, it kind of frames it really well. Adele is a married mother in her early 30s who struggles with psychosexual issues that threaten to destabilise her entire life. And Layla wrote this book, or got the idea for this book, in 2011, she said, after seeing the allegations against Dominic Strauss-Kahn and wondering why we always hear about sex addicts in the press who are men, never hear about women. Mm. And I have to say, I've never actually really given a great amount of headspace to sex addiction. A lot of the time, it's bastardised by... Hollywood um, as a kind of excuse for bad behaviour. You know, Harvey Weinstein, that was sort of one of the defences. David Duchovny um, famously came out as a, as a sex addict in, in the early noughties. Um, I agree, like Layla, it's never something that I've thought about in the context of women. And I basically just think it's a really important read to learn more about this type of addiction. I'm sure I'm not the only person that's never really valued it as seriously as it should be and this book really made me think um it's a very uncomfortable read it's not a cheering read it shares that with lullaby uh, adele literally needs to be filled and i mean that in the physical sense she cannot eat or sleep she itches unless she is penetrated by men with violent force um it's very sparsely written it's very economical there's no moralizing whatsoever which is quite layla's writing style and Adele isn't a likeable character she is consistently trying to get rid of her toddler Lucien whose neediness is never given much narrative but that it's heartbreakingly clear comes from his desperate distracted mother's total lack of interest in him it's a very hard read Um, I think it's an important read I'd love to know what anyone else thinks I actually was very lucky to read a proof of the book it comes out in early 2019 so Get in touch when you do read it. And Dolly, I have it here if you want to borrow it. Oh, thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed Zadie Smith in Elle on ageing. Dolly, this piece was very you. It's in the current issue of Elle. I shared a bit on Instagram that I thought was very poetic about how we melt and we melt and we melt and then we extinguish. I loved that. But there was another bit that I really liked that I wanted to read out. And also... Not but this is as important, but the pictures that are taken of Zadie, the portraits that accompany this piece, are so cool. Like, they're so colourful and gorgeous and lovely. It is commonly thought that time is the particular enemy of women, because we supposedly have so much to lose. Our looks, our fertility, our cultural capital. There have been feminist modifications to this story over the years, but it remains powerful. A tale long told by men and subsequently retold and internalised by women. But there are other ways of looking at it, that women have timepieces built into their bodies, primarily biological clocks and the menopause, signs that must eventually be heeded, signs that are finally impossible to ignore. It seems to me as least as much a gift as a curse that our bodies should bring us such concrete signs of time passing that they should have the miraculous ability to bring us news of what is actually the case it surely means that every woman is offered the opportunity to be as young disciples have it a conscious observer of her own life it's the kind of thing I can imagine you writing when you're older that's so kind of you to say I would love I would love to write like her she's just no one writes like 
Sadie Smith. She's magic. Mm. It's a brilliant piece. Another brilliant piece was Simon Hattonstone interviewing Phoebe Wallerbridge in The Guardian magazine. I think it has one of the funniest payoffs I've ever read in ages. It's a, it's a brilliant piece of journalism by Simon. The piece begins with Simon writing that within the first five minutes of meeting Phoebe, she has told him that she can fart on demand. And when she says goodbye to him at the end of the piece, she pauses perfectly still, concentrates and breaks wind did you hear that, she says? Didn't I tell you I could time my farts to perfection? Then it ends. Um, but the whole thing is really, really interesting. She's actually not unlike Zadie Smith in how um, kind of poetic and refreshing she is about the female consciousness, I suppose, the narrative of how, how we talk about women. There's another bit that I think you'll really like. Obviously, it's about wanking. Um, she says that the scene most people ask her about Fleabag is the one where she's wanking to Obama. And Simon says, have you ever wanked to Obama? And she says, I'm going to keep that to myself. She pauses. I mean, he was just the most exciting man on the planet. And he was devastatingly handsome. Wanking about Obama is for me a perfect joke because it felt real. And there was also something joyous about the politics of the time. He was hope. And I was wanking to hope. <laughs> and there was some sterling journalism this week by Ben Machel in the Times magazine. An interview with Grenfell firefighter Edric Kennedy Mafoy. I read that on your recommendation. Did you? Mm. It's... um. Really affecting, isn't it? it? Yeah. God, I wept reading that. I mm. recommended that everyone read it somewhere where they can actually weep freely because it's actually uh, important to mm. read it and weep freely. Um, I think that any stories that tell and retell what happened at Grenfell from different perspectives are really important. I hadn't read a first-person um, story from a firefighter yet yeah and as you say i think it's important because it helps us piece together and understand that moment in recent history and that tragedy i think there are two things for me that were really important from this which is firstly what the emergency services do to keep us safe what they go through um and what it's actually like literally existing in a sort of news headline being very present at that time and being someone that's kind of actually really instrumental in what happens in that in that kind of disaster and the second thing that I thought was really important and it's important to note that Edric doesn't see himself as one and is quite reluctant to as many other firefighters but the victims are also the firefighters um, many of whom were left with post-traumatic stress disorder Edric actually quit firefighting after Grenfell so that was a really brilliant read he's incredibly eloquent and um, interesting and charismatic he's got a book coming out which I look forward to reading. Which isn't just about Grenfell, it's about his time as a London firefighter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So telling the whole story about working, working in the capacity of the emergency. Um, uh, yeah, you're right, you're really important to point that out because I really hate when the kind of old grinches of the internet come along and suggest that somehow someone's profiting yeah. from something yeah. like that. And you're right, like that's that's just... The reason why it's used as an extract in the Times magazine is because we haven't really heard that story yes. in, in a national newspaper magazine. On a much lighter note, the other brilliant piece by Ben was an interview with Peter Crouch, who I know I'm very late to the party, but God, he's funny. Did you know how funny he was? No, I know how tall he is because I don't like when people are taller than me. CJ, are you disappointed that we don't know how funny he is? Because apparently we really should. Well, he's very good on Twitter. I'm going to start following him now. The, the ultimate medium for... <laughs> for funniness. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, speaking of height, Dolly, I think you'll quite like this. He used to carry around specially printed business cards, which he would hand out to smug-looking strangers the moment they approached him at the bar on a night out and began to open their mouths. They would pause, frown and look down at the card to see that it bore the following five bullet points. Yes, I am tall. Yes, I'm six foot seven inches. 
No, the weather isn't different up here. No, I don't play basketball. I'm so glad we had this conversation. <laughs> I should get those printed for my brother. That's the exact height of my brother. You should get... Oh, I mean, I think he'd love that. Some, I think he's got some left over. <laughs> I don't think he's still carrying them. I'll get in touch with Crouchy. <laughs> what have you been enjoying this week, Dolly? I've been on something of a podcast odyssey. God, I've been so off my podcast. I need to get... Okay, this is great. Give me, give me some fresh content. So the first one I'd like to recommend is a Fresh Air episode, which was put out um, a couple of days after Aretha Franklin died in August. And it's a really, really, really good episode to commemorate her and her music. It includes an archive interview between Aretha and Terry Gross, which I think uh, was after she published her memoir in the 90s, in which she talks a lot about her fascinating childhood, particularly her father, who was this world-famous preacher and would tour the country and people like Martin Luther King would come and hear him preach. Oh my God, how fascinating. Yeah, and he was like a pop star in terms of his, his levels of adoration and fame. And... Aretha Franklin talks in this interview she says he was um, he was a man of the cloth but he was also just a man and she talks about how women would follow him around to listen to him speak and she would watch like a row of women at the front of the church all wearing their very best outfits and apparently someone would accompany him when he would go and, and give these sermons with smelling salts because his sermons were so powerful that it was not uncommon that congregations would pass out <laughs> to him. And they play this amazing extract of his most famous sermon. And it is an extraordinary thing to listen to. It's almost sung in a, in a kind of gospel style. And you really hear... Aretha Franklin's voice in the way he delivers it. So it's, it's just an amazing interview. And uh, the man didn't pay too much attention, but he noticed as time went on that uh, this strange looking bird was unusual. He outgrew the other little chicken. Oh, Lord. And then one day a man who knew eagles, when he saw it, came along and saw that little eagle fellow fans of musicals will love a recent episode of Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin in which he interviews Steve Young who is a man uh, he's a comedy writer he worked on the Letterman show for years and he sort of accidentally became the leading expert on industrial musicals now, I haven't heard of industrial musicals, or industrials as they're known. It's a little-known genre of theatre that was popular in the 60s and 70s and have kind of slipped between the cracks of history. People don't really kind of talk about them a lot. They were fully staged productions commissioned by large companies and performed solely for its salesmen, executives and distributors. So it's like, if you were still at the Sunday Times, it's this. it would be... The Sun. It would be the Times, Sunday Times and The Sun commissioning proper Broadway professionals to write an entire musical about what it's like to work at a newspaper and put it on solely for its employees. That's amazing. It's incredible. And it's like, it, it, it was like the bread and butter work for a lot of big musical theatre composers and stars. So that would be the way that they would, that would be most of the way that they would make their salary and no one would ever see them. But they're these beautiful scores and these incredible productions. What we do have now, though, is press. 
Have you watched that? No, what's that? It's the new drama from the same guy that made Bodyguard, which is another one kind of Mm. blowing up screens at the moment. And it's about two newspapers, which I'm going to say are based on The Sun and The Guardian, telling the same stories. Um, And it's on the BBC at the moment. And I can't say it hugely mirrored my experience of working at a newspaper, but it it reminded me how sexy it looks from the outside. Yes, yeah. You know, how like sort of buzzy and kind of high octane and it's like one tiny news story the kind of energy and pizzazz that goes into it on screen whereas in like <laughs> natural fact it's like fire yeah <laughs> I think you'd I think you'd like it I think anyone that works in journalism oh I would love watch, that should watch press I'll definitely Charlotte Riley's that. in it actually she's great yeah yeah great she's actor. fab um, so yeah, highly recommend that. And it's not just, it, it was like, they play some of the music and they shed light on the genre. And it was, it was companies like bathroom salesmen. So they would put on, there was, I think there was a documentary made about it called Bathtubs Over Broadway. So it was a whole musical about a man coming round to a woman's house to like sell a shower unit or whatever. It's just extraordinary. I just love these kind of curious little quirks yeah. of culture that, pe- that people have, you know, forgotten about. Yeah. Um, I've also been hooked on an American series by Slate, which you will be obsessed with Pandora, called Slow Burn, which reconstructs what it feels like to live through recent history. The first series was on Watergate, which I haven't listened to, but the most recent series is the story of Bill Clinton's downfall in the 90s, his impeachment, and the Monica Lewinsky affair. It's so well told in so much detail. It spares no twist or turn or subplot. And it uses a selection of really riveting interviews from all different viewpoints in and around that story. Uh, So I recommend that highly. I also listened to our mate, Daisy Buchanan, on Sophie Hagen's podcast, Made of Human. I've recommended Made of Human before. Sophie's a really good interviewer. She interviews comedians, writers, all sorts of people about um, their experience of being human and... um, their experiences with mental health conditions um and it's sort of a a very warm and calm and open and honest investigation into the kind of uh fragility of of what it is to live a life daisy's episode is so so good she talks about anxiety she talks about being bullied as a child and the lasting impact that has had on her confidence and sense of self that I'm sure a lot of people will relate to she talks about a recent experience in adulthood of sexual assault and speaks very movingly about the profound sense of shame that that engendered even knowing all that she knows and that she's written about um, in terms of rape culture she talks about how deeply ingrained into her psyche that kind of sense of blame and, and shame was Um, She also talks about her battles with eating in an awe-inspiringly honest way, right up to how it affects her to present day. And I just found it such a brave interview and I really applaud and respect her for sharing so much of her experience on that platform because I know how uncomfortable that must be and I think it's a very generous act to tell those stories in the hope that it will make other people feel less alone or, or less ashamed. On a very different note, I'd like to recommend a recent episode of Guys We Fucked, which is an anti-slut-shaming podcast uh, that Pandora and I have been listening to on and off for years. And the episode that I'd like to recommend is one with a comedian called Dan Soda. 
and it goes back to the original format of Guys We Fucked, where they would bring on guys that they had I've fucked. I've never or heard one okay, it's that subscribes so the original premise, but yeah. they did mention on one I listened to recently that they were going to get on, yeah. because they're both single again, aren't they? Yes. So they're now kind of, there's more in motion. <laughs> yeah, and it makes you realise why this podcast is one of the most listened to podcasts in the world and why it was such a radical thing as a template because they get this guy on who Christina the honesty um, must be brutal is it quite yeah, brutal it's incredible it, they get Christina uh, Christina gets this guy on called Dan um, who's a fellow comedian and they had she, he was like her rebound fling as recently as a few months ago when she came out of a seven year long relationship which she also talked about a lot on the podcast and he talks a lot about his sexual identity, his childhood, his experiences with love, which is, you know, always a compelling interview for me. I love hearing people talk about that stuff. But then for the latter half of it, Corinne kind of becomes the MC of it because she's the one who obviously isn't in the awkward situation there. And she kind of helps coordinate this conversation. It's a really honest conversation between them about the kind of sex they had together, what their sexual dynamic was, how it began, um, what their chemistry was, why it ended. Did you which, cringe listening to it? No, it made me realise how much shame we all have about our sexual experiences because it was, it felt therapeutic listening to it. It felt, it was like, there's one bit where they talk about the fact that Christina thought that she could have this no strings attached sex with him, but she, to use Love Island language that Elizabeth Day taught me, caught the feels. And um, Dan talks about how he's going through his own stuff with um, commitment and intimacy and how he's in therapy. And it means that he realised he couldn't continue a continuous sexual relationship with Christina. And just hearing two people be respectful and honest with each other and breaking down that dynamic... It's just like so many people have found themselves in a situation like that. And to hear two people talk about it and talk honestly about it just felt like the most therapeutic and, yeah, radical thing. But it is radical. Sometimes I listen to the podcast and I almost... I almost can't even listen mm. because I do think it's really important that we normalise this. Yeah. But it's, it's so... Um, it's so exposing... It is exposing. It's quite hard. I find it hard to listen to sometimes. Mm. And, I, and I'd say I'm pretty open-minded, so um, I, I think a lot of people might actually find it quite... It's obviously hugely popular. Yeah. But like you say, it's doing something radical. That's the best word for it. Mm. It is. In, mm. in how we discuss things socially and social constructs, it is, it's radical. And I think what's important to note is that you know, us enjoying this podcast or them even making this podcast isn't suggesting that we should all walk into a bar and be like, hey, what, how, what's your like favourite way to do cunnilingus? That's like trade tips. You, it's more just that you need a kind of like extreme bastion yes. of open sexual conversation yes, to lead the to, way. To, to yeah. filter down a bit. Totally. Like, don't worry, we are not going to be doing this on this podcast. No, no. But, but it's... There'll it, be no reverse cowgirling and, here. And also, <laughs> and also it's... it's uh, it's not something that I would talk about. I don't think it, it to millions of people. I kind of wish that I was so okay with my sexuality and sexual identity and I wasn't so British that I could. But it's the it's the unified experience of it that I think is so useful. And I think listening to someone analyse why they were sexually close with someone and then pulled away. I think if I'd listened to that in my 20s, it would have helped me understand so many of my personal relationships with men. So I just loved that episode and um, I encourage everyone to give it a go. 
And finally, I have spent the last week, 99% of the time, plugged into or listening on loudspeaker everywhere in the bath, in the kitchen, as I fall asleep, to Esther Perel. Her Audible series called Where Should We Begin? And anyone who's not familiar with Esther Perel, she's this incredibly intelligent very um, de- charismatic. I desperately want to try and do her accent, but I know it will come out wrong. Oh my god! <laughs> it's I'm such a soothing voice. I really... <laughs> do you touch each other? Do you make love to yourself? Oh my god! I love her. I'm obsessed with her. Have you really just discovered her? No, I've I've loved I loved mating captivity, which was her book. I loved her TED talk, but I haven't listened to this series, which is her speaking in every episode to a couple in crisis. So I listened to some of it, and I don't mean this to be an awful thing to say, but I am very turned on and off on podcasts by, like, you know, how much I can sort of engage with the people on it. Actually, I suppose that's quite normal. Mm. But some of the couples she's had, I just got so bored. Oh, I find it riveting. Can you send me your favourite episode so I yeah. can have another go? Yeah. Juicy. It's, it's so good. It's, she's a therapist. She's a relationship and sex therapist. And she speaks to a couple in crisis. She helps them work through their issues. Um, And I I just, I wish when I have been in the rare times of my life, I've been in relationships. I wish that I'd listened to it because so much that I'm learning from this. I've listened to like 20 hours, basically, (laughs) in a week. So much that I'm learning is she teaches them how to speak to each other. That's mostly the issue, not the incident or the cheating or the trust issues, or whatever it is that they're that they've come in to talk about, it's the fact that they're in a rut of not arguing or communicating or speaking to each other. But do you not think it's always about communication? Like when I'm in a spin about something and I'm really worried, it the issue is not my worries; it's how it's going to come out. Mm. So I'm going to communicate it to the people involved, or to I don't know the innocent bystander, aka my husband. How mm. will that affect? our conversations because of how I'm feeling like yes. I for me it's always how it comes out because yeah. you can't you can't change the way you react to stuff internally well you can you can dig and dig and dig and you can try and relearn those thought patterns but it's it's all about how it manifests isn't it mm. yeah and I think what I have learned from listening to her is she because she also she slices in sometimes to do a sort of retrospective this is what I did here as a therapist this is a method I used Mm -hmm. at this point and she it's a lot of different diverse cases diverse couples um and she uses diverse techniques you know at one there's this amazing episode with a couple who they feel like they have no sexual compatibility and the only way that they can click into a space where they can be erotic with each other is he has to speak in French. And that sounds mad. And it is... Pandora's got a giggle fit now. I actually started giggling when you said the word erotic. I find it really funny. I'm using so many Esther Perel words. Erotic. She says erotic all the time. But is your touch parental or erotic? (laughs) Um, and she starts, it's this amazing moment in it where they're talking about like how they click into their erotic personas. And they one of them says, you know, I like listening to French music. She's like, do you have a favourite song? I'm going to stop doing the accent because it's probably a bit offensive. She's like, do you have a favourite song? And she says... I feel like this um, woman is you. Edith Piaf. And she just starts singing Edith Piaf in the session. Which sounds ridiculous, but it was actually my favourite episode and was very 
moving. But what you realise as you listen to her, going back to the communication thing, is you can see when couples are actively listening to each other and you can see when they go into these very tired and old speeches and routines that makes each other the victim. Because you do have routines, it's so interesting. You have them in friendships too, but... Do you know where you have it most? I've re- I, as well, While I listen to these couples... I think with my parents you probably have the most say, entrenched routine. As, as while I listen to it, I realise I have it with my brother. And there are certain things that I know that if I say, it's like secret code for... 28 years of conflict and I know when I just want to lash out detonate. I just want to detonate or lash out or make myself feel better I just have to say this certain thing in a certain way and it's like 28 years of you know anger or resentments or conflicts come rush flooding in I invite it in so I think it's really useful for anyone to listen to whether you're in a relationship or not because as you said it's about how you can more effectively communicate with people that you have loving and long-term relationships with I'd like to insert a clip here that I just found so interesting and so powerful. She's so wise and clever. Apparently she speaks nine languages. This is the bit where she's talking to a couple who they feel they don't have sexual chemistry and they say, well, sexual chemistry we shouldn't have to work on. It should be the most natural thing in the world. And she argues that this is a myth of modern time. But isn't this thing supposed to happen naturally? Why is it supposed to be Where the work? hell did you learn that <laughs> BS? The myth that sex is natural has done harm to so many people because it presumes that you should just know rather than the fact that it is something that we learn to appreciate, to experience, we cultivate it. It's an art. And that if you think it's natural, then in fact you often remain ignorant. It's a topic everyone's been talking about. The Hilo inbox has certainly been full of opinions on it. Serena Williams. To fill those of you in who might have missed what went on, Serena Williams lost her temper several times with the umpire Carlos Ramos at the final of the US Open where she was playing against Naomi Osaka on Sunday. She was abusive to Ramos, calling him a liar and a thief, for which, following protocol, he docked a game. She was also fined $17,000 for verbal code violations. So there are a few things to discuss here. Firstly, she's been called unsportsmanlike for failing to understand the parameters of her game. Her opponent, Naomi Osaka, accepting her first Grand Slam um, trophy at age 20, looked visibly upset. She even apologised to the audience, saying that she knew everyone was there to support Serena. I didn't watch the match, but from everything I've read, it seems like it was just a completely awful experience for everyone. It was so sad and disappointing for Naomi Osaka. It was sad and disappointing for Serena Williams. And as Sue Barker pointed out, I think it was just rubbish for everyone watching too. It was just a totally ruined match. I think it's a shame that Serena's behaviour took away from Naomi's victory because that isn't fair or sportsmanlike. And I don't think this was a deliberate attempt to thwart Naomi's triumph. Serena's always been very diplomatic about her competitors and the challenges of her sport. What seems to have happened is that she had a complete meltdown. And whilst that's not acceptable, a lot of people are keen to point out um, quite fairly that male tennis players do this all the time and aren't punished the way Serena was. So that brings us, of course, to the second issue for discussion, which is misogyny. 
Many people have said that if it was Nick Kyrgios, who is a young Australian tennis player known for his petulance and hot temper, he storms off court when the game isn't going his way, the outcome would have been a very different story. In fact, earlier in the tournament, it sort of was a very different story. Kyrgios had been having one of his regular steamy moments when the umpire on that game actually stopped to give him a pep talk of sorts, making sure that nothing he said was heard over the mics. Greg Rosetsky said later on Amazon Prime, where the game was streamed, he got crucified for doing that. So Carlos did the right thing by staying in his chair. It's not his job to calm Serena down. He was applying the laws of the game and I think he did the right thing. Accusations of misogyny hit tennis all the time, whether it's over maternity leave, uniform, behaviour or parity. I read one response which I found particularly enlightening as to the way we still perceive women and sportswomen. Serena showed no grace, it wrote. She showed a shocking example to her daughter. Sure, it wasn't a great example to her daughter, but do you see male tennis players or male sportsmen being lambasted for not being great examples for their children? I don't think every single act you do as as an adult is necessarily going to be or has to be a great example Mm. for your child. And the fact that she showed no grace, like... I understand, again, that we're all there to watch a sport and she's an entertainer, but, like, that it's obligatory to be graceful yeah. whilst also being, like, a leading sportswoman is just so, so misses the mark. We've seen a direct comparison there of how one player, when seen to be going off the boil, was responded to by an umpire versus another. It's not the umpire's role to get involved, and I think Carlos Ramos did do the right thing by not getting involved because the umpire that gave that pep talk to Kyrgios got you know really criticized but that can't change the fact that Kyrgios had a very different treatment earlier in the tournament and sure he's much younger he has much to learn needs many more pep talks Serena was also young once you know she's not unimpeachable herself it's all resurfacing now with all with all this controversy but she was on a sketch where Amelie Moresmo was mocked and portrayed as a man which is something that Moresmo had kind of lobbied at her a lot in the mid-noughties. Lindsay Davenport, Martina Hingis both commentated on how manly she was. Mm. I don't think that kind of discussion would happen now. I don't think they'd get away with it. But, you know, you can't escape the fact that when you're younger, you do stupid things. Serena is, what, 16 years older than Nick. But Nick is also a man and Serena is a woman and that's not immaterial here. Former tennis champ and now BBC tennis presenter Sue Barker noted, I've sat courtside watching the men ranting at umpires and they haven't been given a violation. The fact that it was to be a game violation then robbed the crowd of what potentially could have been a third set. Billie Jean King, who won 12 Grand Slam singles titles and helped found the Women's Tennis Tour and paved the way for equal prize money in the sport, also commented via Twitter on the match, several things went very wrong during the US Open Women's Finals today, she wrote. Coaching on every point should be allowed in tennis. It isn't, and as a result, a player was penalised for the actions of her coach. This should not happen. In a second tweet, King said, When a woman is emotional, she's hysterical, and she's penalised for it. When a man does the same, he's outspoken, and there are no repercussions. Thank you, at Serena Williams, for calling out this double standard. More voices are needed to do the same. It's very telling to me that the women who've been in the sports industry in some capacity, who have experienced what it is like from the inside, are the people who've defended her. 
Absolutely. An Australian newspaper, The Morning Herald, was criticised for a cartoon they published on Tuesday, which depicted Serena as a giant baby with exaggerated facial features. JK Rowling, one of my favourite women on Twitter, favourite people on Twitter actually, tweeted, well done on reducing one of the greatest sportswomen alive to sexist and racist tropes and turning a second great sportswoman, Naomi Osaka, into a faceless prop. She was depicted in the cartoon as white and blonde, which is problematic given that she is Japanese, American and Haitian. The cartoonist himself responded saying, here's one I drew of Nick Kyrgios having a tantrum, so don't bring gender into it. That cartoon was so deeply offensive. I don't know what they were thinking. Obviously, as well as accusations of sexism in this incident, this also intersects with racial bias as well. Yomi Adegoke wrote for The Pool... As a woman, and more importantly, a black woman, Williams's passion, which is by no means out of place in sport, is far more heavily scrutinised and therefore penalised in comparison with her peers. The stereotypes of being inherently aggressive because of her skin colour and emotionally unstable because she's a woman means that angry black woman label has stuck with her for years. Her words hold more venom, her comments appear more cutting by virtue not of what's being said, but who is saying it. Retired US tennis star Andy Roddick chimed in on Twitter... I've regrettably said worse and I've never got a game penalty. There's a fair few people, to give this topic due balance, who say that this has nothing to do with women's rights. I actually think many of the tennis commentators have spoken about it best when they have said the umpire didn't do anything wrong, Serena behaved unacceptably, but we have to look at why the umpire is prepared to always go by the book with female tennis players, but make allowances Mm. for men. I think when people say this has nothing to do with women's rights, they're looking at her having a tantrum. Yes, that doesn't have anything to do with women's rights. She did have a tantrum. She shouldn't have had a tantrum. Was that shit for Naomi Osaka, who'd won and deserved her moment in the sun? Yes, absolutely. It's merely the fact that it doesn't happen with male tennis players. Um... We have to look at why the umpires it will go by the book with female tennis players but make allowances for men. And further, when men have tantrums like this, we aren't still talking and writing about it days later. It's the narrative around this. In fact, often, especially for the high-low, it is the narrative that's interesting. I completely agree with you. I think that's the whole point. I don't think the question is, was it okay for a sports player to behave like this? The answer is, of course, no. I'm sure Serena Williams doesn't think of that day as her best day at work. Mm. The issue here is the disparity between how we deal with male behaviour in sport and how we deal with female behaviour, and indeed how we discuss it and, and report it. This isn't an isolated incident. This incident acts in a great long catalogue of incidents both in the sporting world and the way that women's sports and sports players have been spoken about for decades. Anyone who tries to assess this as an autonomous incident is either playing willing ignorance or just not getting it. I mean, Serena's had to weather so many of these things kind of against her in her um, industry for so long. Only 10 years ago, they, the default was tennis players were white and skinny they all, and blonde. They all looked like Anna Kornikova. She had to really weather so much commentary about the way she looked. People couldn't get over the fact that she was, you know, very muscled, that she wasn't a sort of golden waif, you know, nymphetting around the court. And she's kind of come through so much. And I suppose you thought she'd got to a point where this commentary was kind of almost beyond her. I certainly thought that she'd sort of solidified her yeah I sort of did 
Of course, then there's that controversial topic of motherhood. There's been a lot of discussion over Serena returning to tennis soon after having her baby. And she's contributed to that discussion on occasions. She said that if she has another baby, she will likely retire. I feel really conflicted over this conversation. I think it's important that we acknowledge the fundamental physical and emotional trauma involved in having a baby. And that could have lightly contributed to her having this tantrum. It's not the first tantrum she's ever had. There are others reported that you can read on Google. But obviously this comes shortly after having her child and the context is different. On the other hand, I have seen how us having this public conversation has merely allowed people to say, well, she should have never come back. She should stay at home with her baby, which as a new mother myself and inevitably fairly biased I find incredibly depressing yeah I don't know how I feel about that I think it I think it is too easy to default to her hormones or experience of birth as as a reason and I worry that that does diminish the legitimacy of her of her feelings it feels like culturally we're either allowed to say birth is hard mothers need time to heal or being a mother shouldn't thwart a career um you're fully capable you know Mm -hmm. you can have your period and then still win this that and the other I I want us to be able to acknowledge that actually when you're on your period you feel really shit but you can still Mm -hmm. conquer the world you know why can't we be both why can't you mothers receive empathy whilst also being empowered enough by society to return to work and to even have a tantrum without the legitimacy of that return being kind of threatened or undermined Mm -hmm. i think that's a very good point some people have said that she has used motherhood as an excuse for losing her temper i think the word excuse shouldn't be mixed up with um contributing factor much like criticism and crucifixion and secondly she wouldn't have lost her temper had she not felt an injustice she shouldn't abuse the umpire and she should you know have been punished for calling him a liar because it is defamation but she's also well aware herself that a male player wouldn't have been punished in that way and so whilst her outburst wasn't chic or graceful or respectful to Naomi who I do really feel for I think we should be thinking what can we learn from this not Serena let herself go she let women down she let her daughter down I hardly think as female role models go that Serena's letting us all down Yes, and how does this fit into the wider context and history of an extraordinary amount of sexism and racism in national sports across the board? How do we monitor and change that? I mean, another talking point on racism in sport right now is the new Nike campaign. CJ, I bet you know all about that. The NFL player Colin Kaepernick, who is the new face of Nike and who refused to sing the national anthem during an American football match in protest against police brutality against black people. He's kind of been seen as so controversial that no team will touch him. So Nike working with him is, if not a brave decision, then a pretty cool one, one that should be recognised as doing something that is not the norm. And their sales are up 31%. Mm. So when you see big corporate entities backing an end to racism or calling out racial injustices yeah recognizing a problem you see the public respond yeah. um that said it is a great shame to bring it back to this topic it is a great shame that all the coverage of this match focused on serena and not naomi osaka's first ever grand slam win it's a huge deal for her and that was taken away from her i think sue barker put it best quite poetic actually when she said that the umpire was following the rules by the book but sometimes the book needs to be rewritten. Here, <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's yet another story about a woman in the public eye being chased off social media. Broadcaster Kirsty Allsop made a comment on TV about her parenting and particularly screen time, which made headline news and then angered the Twitter mob. The mother to two sons and two stepsons said she took action after her children played games outside their permitted time. She told Channel 5's Jeremy Vine, this is the first time I've said this publicly, in June I smashed my kids' iPads, not in a violent way, I actually banged them on the table leg. She added, there is a game called Fortnite and I decided we'd made all sorts of rules and all sorts of times when we said you can't play them and all those rules got broken and in the end I said, right, that's it, I have to physically break them. She later posted on Twitter, if you found your kids with a packet of cigarettes, would you say, I won't destroy these because they're worth a tenner but please don't smoke? No, of course you wouldn't. She has since suspended her account. Pandora, what are your thoughts? Well, it reinforces my decision to share as little narrative as possible about my parenting on social media, that's for sure. Yeah, I think that's a smart decision. I think there are two separate things that have caused the backlash here. The first is the insinuation of aggression, that this is such a drastic solution to seemingly such a minor problem. The second is that it's insensitive. For her, a woman with immense financial privilege, this is just a story about discipline. But what it doesn't acknowledge or perhaps is insensitive to is that a lot of households don't have the option of providing children with their own iPads, let alone the option to smash it against the table and throw it away simply to prove a point. The first issue doesn't bother me so much personally, but maybe that's just because I don't have kids. It's obviously a story of an unusual action hence why she's telling it i don't think she's encouraging it's generally smashing household objects instead of talking things through it's a hyperbolized action to demonstrate her frustration about technology which i'm sure lots of parents struggle with i do think it's kind of needlessly inflammatory to tell the story because as mad as the story is i think it would have made more sense in the context of their particular family after many discussions in the context of their home but telling that story out of context she must have known it would have caused controversy, particularly because she's gotten hot water so many times before with her comments on raising children. I kind of feel like she should be able to smash an iPad without being accused of all these kind of wild accusations. I don't think she makes any secret of being privileged. And I do, I think there has to come a point where how how many times does one have to begin every sentence with, I know I'm very privileged, but you, when someone's not hiding it and they sort of regularly call it out, I just don't know if I think it should be the prefix to every single story when it when it is clearly obvious rock stars throw tellies out the window all the time that don't belong to them she's destroying her own property a twitter user pointed out that it would have been more constructive to donate the ipad to charity and actually that would have been a more effective punishment for her Mm. children as they'd have known that their beloved ipad was still in existence being played (laughs) with by another child far more agonizing and fundamentally less wasteful that's that's the only bit Mm. that i that i kind of can completely understand and like you say I, I just wouldn't have told the story personally she's voiced some fairly rigid personal rules about 
uh, parenting and, and some opinions on birthing before. She said she and her husband sometimes sit in business class and put their kids in economy on a flight because flying children business is an absurd waste of money. She says schools should not dictate to parents when kids should attend school in response to truancy statistics in children as young as four. Now that's stupid because she's assuming that everyone has um, a really reliable and loving set of parents. Uh, schools punished for truancy not not for you know joe bloggs who wants to take their child off to mauritius it's for the parents that are neglecting their mm. children and mm. so they need a kind of incentive or whatever the reverse of incentive is yeah. to make sure they're keeping them in school so she's completely she's like that's middle well, class again, missing again, of the again, point that's her privilege talking yeah. Yeah. yeah she's accused the nct of not giving enough information on cesareans and accused them of being politicised and dogmatic and in mm, 2014 she encouraged women to put off higher education and having a career to uh, perhaps have children first if they wanted to have children to avoid running out of time nature is not with you and I nature is not a feminist she said interesting point I now, nature I is actually, a feminist I actually think there are a huge amount of women who would agree with her on a lot mm. of those points mm-hmm. and I do think that there are lots of conversations that happen amongst women in this day and age in hushed voices in the privacy of their own homes that they feel like they could never talk about in a public space for fear of being chastised or called a bad feminist or a bad person. But the question is, is it foolish of a woman as public as Kirsty Allsop to say these things? Should she know the online climate well enough to know that being chased off Twitter is sadly an inevitability in response to those comments? Or by thinking about these things out loud, is she encouraging debate and therefore offering a sort of public service? I mean, I think that she shouldn't, I don't think anyone, but I know that you and I certainly are, anyone should be scared to voice their views on things because they're going to be chased off Twitter to, to use that hyperbole. I I think there are like much more important things going on. I think you can be like, God, she smashed an iPad, how wasteful. I honestly don't think it says anything beyond that. Mm. I don't think it says anything about her parenting or anything about her children. I think it literally just said that she got pissed off and smashed an iPad and yeah, that that that's a waste of money. It's it's wanton, it's um it's wasteful. I remember a lot of those things that she said. I thought it was actually quite funny when she said she made her kids sit in economy. Quite right too. You have to earn the right to sit in business class. I'm still <laughs> earning that right. In all seriousness, though, I actually think she should have brazened out the iPad comment. You know, she smashed an iPad. She didn't smash it on her children's head. I think people calling her violent need to get a grip. Yes, her children might well remember that incident when they're older. But my brothers and sisters and I all remember a particular incidents from our childhood where we were naughty and our parents responded dramatically and we all laugh about it now doesn't that go with the territory and all those people criticising saying well knee jerk reactions don't solve anything have they seriously never lost their temper before get a grip just realised that both our topics this week are about women losing their temper and people not being able to cope yeah. it shows how badly we react to and we socialise female anger Kel fucking surprise do you know who's very interesting on this I know I talk about this interview all the time uh, Zadie Smith on the Torre show which is a podcast talks about how um, she's totally fine with being a good enough parent and that we have become so totally obsessed she said it's a very American thing as well with being um, like a multi-skilled parent you have to be um an amazing sort of entertainer you have to be mm. an amazing um teacher at home you have to be like boundlessly nourishing and maternal and she said that's just 
doesn't equip you for real life. And I think that so much of existence is about, she uses a particular phrase that's so brilliant. It's like being bearably unhappy or something you know it's about just just getting on with it you know you don't have to be so happy and so satisfied and so comfortable all the time children aren't going to be traumatized by this i bet they have like a very nourishing comfortable cozy loving childhood why can't kirstie also be like a pretty good mom and a pretty good uh, a pretty good presenter so she's rich so she makes short-sighted comments she's not the first person who's Mm. rich to make a decision that people without money wouldn't have made i mean if we start going down that path you know you could stay you walk into someone who's rich household and say my god they're throwing out the rest of the roast chicken what an unbelievable waste you can make three more meals out of that you can make a curry you can make a soup yes you should and how great not to produce waste but i think just the whole it's just bloody snowballs doesn't Mm. it Mm. i mean i'm quite torn on this story a part of me feels like she should know that parenting and more specifically mothering um because this is a, this is such a gendered topic, is for some reason still one of the most controversial things that you can talk about in modern time, and that saying anything even vaguely off the pre-approved safe script will have big repercussions. She hasn't cared before though. This is what's interesting. She's left Twitter. Mm. She hasn't really cared before when people have like she's. Fat. I think when she's asked about the plain thing, she's you know like breezed it, breezed, yeah. breezed yeah. over it. So this is what seems, yeah, it seems like she cares now. Another part of me feels that maybe my sort of cautious reluctance, if it were me, um, is just my despondency to hysteria speaking, which is sad because that's a kind of weary self-censorship and that doesn't feel particularly feminist or modern or democratic. And perhaps people should be equipped to hear different opinions on parenting to them and embrace an opportunity for discussion and debate rather than using it as compelling evidence of someone being a terrible parent or person. I can't pretend I'm brave enough to resist the hysteria myself, but I wish she was, as she historically seems to have been. I think it's ridiculous how badly weighted our outrage is at the moment. I can bet that people were more outraged by Kirsty smashing an iPad than they were about those babies having no nappies in the Calais refugee camp that we talked about earlier. I can't help but feel like this is such a petty anger rather than a righteous anger. And... I think it's what we see a lot on Twitter and it makes me angry, to use the word of the word of the episode. Well, my big final question specifically to you, Pandora, is can you ever see yourself smashing Zadie's iPad up against a chair? She probably won't even have an iPad. She'll probably have a robot and it will do everything <laughs> for me, including co-host this podcast and I can just lie in bed all day. Can't wait. <laughs> time for Ask the High Low. After finishing my university degree in June, I suddenly became seriously ill with an autoimmune disease. I developed sepsis and was forced to spend a week in hospital and heartbreakingly missed my graduation and my 21st birthday. Unfortunately, the drug regime the doctors have given me, whilst they have improved my quality of life immensely, haven't been able to get me to a place of normality. My mental health has seriously suffered and I have been really struggling with the whole situation. My friends, as I knew they would be, have been amazing, unwavering in their support. The problem is that I don't want to see them. We've all just left university and my best friends have embarked on new exciting adventures. Three have started amazing new jobs in London and the other two have been travelling all over the world. When they try and talk to me to find out how I'm doing, I want to be honest and tell them how awful I'm feeling. But I feel stuck as I don't want to hear about their amazing new lives. 
I've never been a jealous friend and I'm so happy for them doing so well. But every time I hear about it, I break down in tears afterwards as all I can think about is how much I'm missing out on. I don't recognise the voice in these thoughts. I used to pride myself on being a loyal, empathetic friend. It feels like my identity has been taken away by my illness. I feel like a terrible friend and I don't know how to stop feeling this way. My friends have been so kind to me and I don't want to lose them. Please help me. Oh my God, I can completely understand why you feel like that. Mm. And then the guilt that's piling on to those already really hard feelings about the fact that your life hasn't turned out temporarily how your life hasn't turned out how you wish it was so so hard to digest that and to keep positive um I think the only thing you can do is be honest and I know in my own life that when I've said that something's hard for me and I see friends adapting to that there you do see in their eyes that they are trying to be careful what they say to you But I think that's no bad thing. I think perhaps you do need to be shielded a little bit from the glories of everyone's life. And I don't think anyone would begrudge you that. It sounds like they're brilliant friends. And I'm interested when you say I used to be empathetic and loyal. You're still empathetic and loyal. That's exactly what I was going to say. You're just going through such a hard time that, understandably, you don't really have the emotional bandwidth to to be as invested in your friends' lives as you want. Um, I would just be honest with them. And... It's not your problem how they respond. Some might not respond well, but I have a hunch that most will and that you're going to be friends long after you recover. As Pandora said, I think we really do not have to worry that somehow you have lost your empathy or your skills of being a good friend. You're it's very it's messy. in this letter. Exactly. That proves that, you know, you're going through the most horrific time in your life and still at the front of your concerns is being there and being supportive for the people that you love so don't worry about that when when I was reading your um email I was thinking about um my best friend had a number of horrific tragedies happen to her in a very short space of time and in the initial aftermath she kind of withdrew from all of us and she couldn't really talk to us or hang out with us and a big moment of change in helping her recover from it and for me being useful to her as a friend and for her uh, for our relationships to, to strengthen as a group of friends is when she said to me very honestly I hate myself for this and I'm really struggling with with my feelings about this but I can't talk to you guys at the moment because I feel like you have just nothing to complain about and that makes me upset when I when I feel when I hear those thoughts in my head which make me feel like a bad person so it's this like really toxic soup and the minute that she said it things started to get better because it was an uncomfortable thing for her to say it was an uncomfortable thing for me to hear um but vulnerability and honesty and I'm speaking as someone who finds that very hard sometimes for friends it's the most powerful thing and it was like the biggest relief for her to just say it and as Pandora said I think that's like a huge amount of the bonding and the work anyway just the the bravery and the trust that it takes to say that to a friend but then you know that those friends they won't censor themselves with you but they'll just be they'll be sensitive and it means you'll feel more relaxed in the in their company and the way those conversations will go. So just as always with Pandora and I, our advice is just tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. 
I think if you don't, you're at risk of self-sabotage because you know that you're not necessarily in the best place to hear about their amazing travels and their amazing new jobs. I think you actually have to take yourself out, but I don't mean withdraw. It's just about building emotional boundaries and everyone in one way or another has emotional boundaries. Um, Yours are just particularly large at the moment and actually probably much more warranted than most of our emotional boundaries. Um, You've gone through something really seismic and you probably, you sound like you're someone that's trying so hard to still be bubbly and perky and awesome about their lives. So they're calling you and thinking that they're bringing you all the news from the mm. big smoke or and around it the world. you and cheer you are. Because they don't know any difference. Exactly. So you, yeah. do, you have to communicate that. And, it, and it, it, it might not be easy. It doesn't sound like any of this is going to be hugely easy. So we're just sending you all we can, which is love and luck and hope. Yeah. And, and remember that life happens in different trajectories and because this is a moment of stumble in the road. Yeah. It doesn't mean that all those riches of experience aren't ahead of you. Or yeah, you're not going to be deprived of what they're experiencing. You just can't experience it while all of they are, while your peers are. And that's really hard Mm. to see. Thank you so much for writing in and Pandora and I are just sending you an enormous hug. Thank you very much to anyone who wrote into The Hilo. You can write to us at thehiloshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at thehiloshow. Bye-bye. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.